Hello and welcome to Holmes, Borden, and the Watson Papers. This is your host, Chris Dilworth. Thanks for joining me. Let me finish up with Assistant Marshal Fleet. I've already told you that he did not organize a thorough, methodical search or investigation at the Borden property. He did not set up a command center. He did not gather all the officers together and say, evict everybody on the property who is not a police officer, a family member, or a medical doctor. He doesn't do a careful, methodical search of the house. He doesn't organize one. He wanders around basically for most of the time he's there by himself or maybe in the company of one or two other officers. He has two interviews with Lizzie. One of them, he blunders into her bedroom. He doesn't even know where her bedroom is. He just goes up to the second floor, sees Mrs. Borden's body, barges into Lizzie's room, interviews her, asks her the standard questions. Then he tries to go up the back stairs. He can't get into the Borden bedroom. He doesn't have the key. He doesn't think to ask for it. He goes up to Bridget's bedroom. He sticks his head in the closet. He opens a trunk, doesn't pull anything out, looks under the bed as if the murderer is going to be there. At some point, he gets down into the basement and he finds a patrolman named Mullaly, who is probably the dumbest member on the dumbest police force in America. Mullaly has been doing the same thing that Fleet's been doing. He's just been walking around gawking at the bodies and looking at things. They might as well just pay their 10 cents and go into the freak show. It's like they're at the circus. At any rate, Mullaly has been down in the basement in the cellar. He was down there when Bridget was sent down to show the officers where the hatchet and the axes could be found. And Bridget has showed them all a box on a shelf in one of the rooms in the cellar. And they pull two hatchets out. One is dull and beat up and rusty. And that's never really a candidate to be the murder weapon. But there is a shingling hatchet, which looks like a miniature medieval battle axe. That's the shape of the blade. And it's got a claw hammer back. Claw hammer meaning you would use it to pull nails out of a board. That's the back of this sharp medieval battle axe hatchet. That, they think, might be the murder weapon because it's sharp and it's got red stains on it, which turn out to be rust. Those two hatchets come out of the box and they find a couple of axes which are never seriously considered to be the murder weapons. And Mullaly lays all of these weapons or these implements down on the brick floor in the back of the cellar. That's what they call the washroom. And that's about the extent of Mullaly's police skills. At some point, Fleet comes down to the basement and asks Mullaly to show him the box where the hatchets were found. And Mullaly does, and Fleet takes the box down, puts it on something so he can look into the contents, and he pulls out a hatchet head that nobody has seen yet. He's the first officer to find it. And it has two interesting features, maybe three. One is that the blade seems quite sharp. That's number one. Number two, it does not have the same coating of fine dust that everything else in the basement has. That fine powdery dust you see in an attic or a basement, undisturbed dust that has just accumulated over months, maybe years. Instead, it looks like it's been dropped into a pile of coal ashes, rough ashes, rough big flakes of ash, not giant flakes, not the size of your fingernails, but compared to dust particles, they're big. And there are piles of ash, of coal ash, nearby because there's a coal furnace. 
So that's one thing. In other words, what's on the surface of this hatchet blade is different than what you find everywhere else in terms of a coating or a surface for other objects in the cellar. But the other thing is that even though the main part of the handle has been broken off, you can see a little bit of wood coming out of the eye of the hatchet, and that wood is freshly broken. It is not oxidized dirty. It's not brown or black. So what you've got here is you've got a sharp hatchet head that looks like it may have been intentionally dropped into a pile of coal ashes, possibly after it was washed off. And you've got a broken handle, but the break is clearly new. Your person of somewhere close to average intelligence would think this might be useful. This might be relevant. This might be the murder weapon. Somebody might have used it, broken off the handle, rinsed the head off, and stuck it in a pile of coal ashes and then thrown it in a box and hoped that nobody would notice. But that is too much of a leap for a fleet. That is way beyond his capabilities. So he just puts it back in the box, puts the box either back on the shelf or just leaves it on some surface, knee high or waist high, and goes on with his business. At some point, he goes out and tries to organize the men, but he doesn't do it very effectively. He does start sending some of the men down to different areas in the city as if he's going to catch a maniacal, blood-covered axe murderer. Like, go down to the train station and see if there are any insane people running around covered with blood, waving hatchets and threatening to slaughter the travelers. And at one point, he sends Medley down. Medley is one of the more intelligent cops. Unfortunately, Medley turns out to be a compulsive liar. Let's talk about Medley. Medley gets there about 1140. Fleet arrives about 1145. So Medley gets there a few minutes before Fleet. And Medley, when he gets there, apparently wants to wait for Fleet so that Fleet can give him some instructions. Fleet arrives a few minutes after Medley. Fleet goes into the house. Medley waits a couple minutes and follows him in. Like every cop who goes into the house, literally every cop who goes into the house that day, Medley looks at Mr. Borden's body first. Then he goes upstairs and he looks at Mrs. Borden's body. And then he wanders into Lizzie's bedroom. And then he asks her the standard questions. And the interview lasts the standard three to five minutes. But to his credit, one thing that Medley picks up on when he's interviewing Lizzie is that she claimed she was in the loft of the barn. Now, this is a hot day, and Medley knows enough about barn lofts to know that they tend to get really hot because they're not usually ventilated. So Medley finishes the interview with Lizzie, and at some time around, at the earliest, it would be about 11.50. It might be close to noon. It's somewhere in there. Medley leaves the house, goes right across to the barn, goes up the stairs, and makes certain observations, which I think are not true. I think what he claims he saw was not true. But what he says is he gets up, he looks at the barn floor from eye level. So he's halfway up the stairs and he crouches down and he looks across the floor and he can't see any evidence that there are footprints or there are any disturbances in the dust on the floor. Then he comes up and stands at the top of the stairs and looks all over the floor and he doesn't see any footprints. It's just virgin dust. Then he puts, bends down and puts his hand down, presses his hand down into the dust and lifts it up and he sees that there's a clear handprint. So that leads him to think that if Lizzie had been walking around in the loft, which she claimed, 
She claimed she'd gone over some workbench or some pile of lumber on one side of the barn and fished through a box or a basket that had lead in it. If she had, there'd be footprints. And he he testifies under oath that there were no footprints. So then he gets off the stairs and takes about three or four steps along the edge of the loft. And then he goes back to the stairs and looks at his footprints. And that confirms his belief, what he's already inclined to believe, which is that Lizzie was not up in the loft of the barn. Now, if he had been telling the truth, because I think he's smart enough, he he was smart enough to know that if, in fact, this was the truth and he really had seen the things he claimed to see, he was smart enough to know that he should have gotten corroboration from other officers, that at least one other officer, and the more the better, he should have gotten them to come up to the top of the stairs and confirm that what he was seeing was true, that they could say, yes, that's exactly what I see as well, Medley. And or he would have posted a cop at the door of the barn and said, upon pain of death, you are not to allow anybody in here. I will break your neck if you let anybody in here before I get back. And then he would have gone as fast as he could to find Fleet And he would have brought Fleet back because Fleet was the chief officer. Fleet was the person in command at the Borden property. Bring Fleet to the barn. Say, you've got to come up here and look. Have Fleet come up the stairs. Have Fleet confirm everything that Medley claimed. And then say, in case you're not smart enough to figure this out, Assistant Marshal, we need to keep everybody out of the barn. We need to get a photographer over here. We need a photographer to take pictures so that nobody can claim we're lying. And then we've got Lizzie. She's given us an alibi that we can prove is untrue. And then we can squeeze her. We can put the squeeze on and we'll break her like a nut. She'll break, she'll crack and we'll break the case. But instead of doing that, he comes down, doesn't say anything to anybody, doesn't say anything to his colleagues, doesn't say anything to Fleet. He sees Fleet either right after coming down from the loft or quite quickly. He's still in the yard. He's come down from the loft and he hasn't gone anywhere. And right around that time, Fleet comes out. So maybe Medley's been out for a few minutes, but not very long. And Fleet runs into him and sends him off to the train station to catch the train to Providence to catch a potential bloody axe-murdering maniac who's waving a bloody hatchet. But Medley doesn't say anything to him. Medley doesn't say, I've just broken the case. He doesn't say, Lizzie Borden's a liar and I can prove it. He doesn't say, Assistant Marshal Fleet, before I go, can I take you up to see this? He doesn't say, Assistant Marshal Fleet, we've got to make sure nobody goes into the barn. How can you possibly believe that Medley's telling the truth? Not to mention the fact that the defense, of course, brings in at least four witnesses at trial who testify that they were up in the barn in the loft before Medley was, or they heard people, they were downstairs and could hear people walking around in the loft of the barn before Medley claims he was there. I've told you about the lack of leadership. I've told you about the lack of coordination. But now we've got a a cop who flat out lies from everything I can tell, from everything I've read. We've got a cop who is ready to commit perjury and does commit perjury happily. So that's Medley. We've got Mullaly. We've got Medley. We've got Fleet. I've told you about Harrington. Harrington was the one competent officer. The problem is 
that Harrington didn't get there soon enough to see what Lizzie was wearing for a dress. And the whole issue of the dress becomes really important because the police are convinced that Lizzie lies about what she was wearing that morning. The first police that arrive at the house, nobody thinks to say to Lizzie, please, Lizzie, would you change out of your dress? Can you put on another dress? We just want to make sure that you haven't brushed up against blood or something. We just want to take a look at your dress. Don't worry. Nothing to worry about. They don't do that. Nor do any of them make a note of what she's wearing just in case there's a dispute down the road, just in case after the fact they ask her to produce the dress, which it turns out they do but not till Saturday, not till two days later. But just in case they do think to ask for her to turn over the dress, maybe it would have been helpful if one of the cops had made a note saying, this is what she's wearing. This is the color. This is the pattern. It's in such and such a condition. Nobody thinks to do that. Nobody even notices. And the one cop who notices what she's wearing in detail is Harrington, but he gets there after she has changed. So they don't even pay attention to what she's wearing. And she turns over on Saturday when they ask her to turn over the dress she was wearing on Thursday morning before she changed into her pink wrapper, which is what Harrington saw her wearing at 1220. She turns over a Bengaline silk dress, which is a dark blue dress that is a combination of silk and linen. I don't think any woman in Fall River who was short of the 10 richest families, anybody who didn't belong to the 10 richest families, anybody below that on the economic ladder, I don't think any of them would have worn silk in the morning when they're puttering around the house. Not if they do any kind of chores, of any kind. Not if they make their own beds. Not if they iron their own fancy handkerchiefs. They're going to wear a cheap cotton dress. They're going to wear gingham or or calico. That is what the police and the prosecution claim she was wearing, but they can't really prove it for the reasons I've already told you. And the only witness who seems to have a clear memory of what Lizzie was wearing, aside from Lizzie, who I don't think was telling the truth, she turns over this dress that I've told you I don't think she was wearing. It was too nice a dress, among other things. The only witness who actually has a clear memory of what she was wearing that day was Mrs. Churchill. And Mrs. Churchill says it was a faded blue dress with a a navy diamond pattern on the front. So there's a small figure, navy blue, of a diamond on the front of the dress, somewhere in the blouse area, above the waist. And it's uh, otherwise it's a pale blue dress, sort of a blue and white, blue and white threads almost. Doherty, the cop, has a vague memory that it's a pale blue dress, but that's all he can say. And Bowen, at the inquest, before he thinks to protect her, before Bowen, who's loyal to the family, who's got a definite desire to protect Lizzie, if at all possible, being a family friend and the family doctor, and I think having some particular affection for Lizzie individually, Bowen later at trial says, oh, I can't remember what she was wearing. I couldn't begin to tell you. I don't really notice dresses. I can't tell you anything about it. His testimony from the inquest is he's cross-examined by the prosecutor and the prosecutor brings out his testimony from the inquest and says, didn't you describe it as a drab, everyday, cotton, calico type of dress? And there's this sparring going back and forth. And Bowen says, well, I didn't really notice. And The prosecutor goes, just answer the question. And they go back and forth on this. Did you say that? Yes or no? That's the question. Just answer the question. 
And finally, the prosecutor reads the questions and answers from the inquest. He's got the transcript and he says, did you say that? And Bowen says, if you say I said it, I said it. And then Knowlton, the prosecutor, holds up this navy blue, fancy silk and linen dress that Lizzie claimed she was wearing, this Bengaline silk dress, and goes, would you call this faded calico? Would you call this faded drab calico? So it's pretty clear. I think there's pretty strong evidence. I'm not going to say it was proof beyond a reasonable doubt, but I would say clearly it was by a preponderance of the evidence that Lizzie was wearing this pale blue dress with a diamond pattern. Why would she not have turned that over on Saturday when they asked for it? Why would she turn over another dress if she had nothing to hide? And isn't it unfortunate that the police never thought to ask for it on Thursday? Isn't it unfortunate that the police never made a note of what she was wearing? Isn't it unfortunate that they didn't even notice what she was wearing? Forget about actually writing down a description. It would have been nice if they'd noticed what she was wearing before she went up and changed. But they didn't. Now, there are a couple of other cops who figure into this, but they don't figure into it so much on Thursday. It's more Saturday and Monday. So we have this haphazard, crazy, sloppy, chaotic investigation, if you want to call it that, on Thursday, where cops are not really sure of what they're looking for, other than a maniac hiding in a closet somewhere or a, or a bloody hatchet. They're not really sure what they're looking for. They're going back through the same area over and over again. I think Fleet goes into the cellar three or four times. I think Fleet goes through the house two or three times without making any kind of focused or careful search. And this is symptomatic of the entire police force, pretty much. And Harrington, unfortunately, not only does he come too late to see what Lizzie's wearing in the morning, but I think they send him off for two hours on a wild goose chase. Go down to the road to New Bedford and stand at the bridge and see if there are any maniacs running across covered with blood. I mean, this is a city of 80,000. You've got a lot of people coming and going. It's a work day. You've got people traveling on business. You've got people just traveling for whatever reason. You've got salesmen. You've got merchants. You've got the regular traffic that any city of 80,000 people will have. And you've got all kinds of roads and connections, railroads, streetcars, buggies, foot traffic, people riding on horses. It's impossible. You can't, and you don't have radios. You can't radio to the police and say, drive your patrol cars out and set up roadblocks. It's really a waste of time to be sending officers in this scattered sort of wild goose chase fashion to jump on a train to Providence and see if there are any crazy people. Unfortunately for the police, they send Harrington off, off on one of these fruitless junkets. And so he's gone for a couple of hours. And when he gets back, finally, Hilliard is there. 2.30, 3 o'clock, Hilliard is finally deigned to arrive at the Borden residence. And Hilliard goes up into the barn at some point. Let's just say it's 3 o'clock. And he's got all the men up in the barn. And what they're doing is there's a lot of hay up in the loft this loft that we've been talking about this whole episode. And Hilliard's up in the loft, and he's got half a dozen men up there, and I think they're up there with pitchforks or rakes, and he's having them throw the hay from one side of the barn to the other, I think to make sure that there's no murder weapon hidden in the hay. Maybe he's looking for a needle. It wouldn't surprise me if Hilliard decided that it was a good idea to look for a needle in a haystack. 
at any rate, they're pitching the hay from one side of the barn loft to the other. And that's when Harrington and I believe Fleet at the same time, but certainly Harrington, both Harrington and Fleet at that time say to Hilliard, it's about three o'clock on Thursday afternoon. You wouldn't believe Lizzie's attitude when we interviewed her. I've never seen anybody so cold and botic, no emotions. It was freaky. She was cold. She was haughty. She was arrogant. She was overconfident. She showed no emotion. Then she says she's up here. Look, here we are up in this loft. It's unbearable. It's stifling. It's awful. The windows are closed. The little hay door is closed. She was up here for 15 or 20 minutes in her long dress. I don't think so. I don't believe her. So by three o'clock on Thursday afternoon, the marshal, the man in charge of this police force, the man who's calling the shots, the man who is the ultimate authority on this investigation, is hearing from his best officer, Harrington, and from his number two, his sidekick, that they think there's something seriously wrong with Lizzie, and it doesn't occur to any of them to say to her, before we leave today, we need that dress. Give it to us. It doesn't occur to them to interview everybody on the property and try to get some kind of clear picture of what she'd been wearing for a dress earlier in the day. And by that time, by three o'clock in the afternoon, four o'clock, certainly by 4.30 or 5, the newspapers have come out. They've come out with the afternoon or evening edition If there's a morning paper, it has come out with a special afternoon edition because this is the crime of the century. It's not just the crime of the century for Fall River. It's the crime of the century for the United States. And so there are newspaper articles, front page special editions. And one of the things they're talking about is this note that's in the articles. And word has gotten all through the city that there was this missing note. Somebody was sick. Could Mrs. Borden go help? And so it's the afternoon. And these cops, I'm going to say Harrington, I'm sure, was thinking about this already. But even cops as incompetent and stupid as Fleet and Hilliard must have started to say, when is somebody going to come forward and say, I sent that note? When is somebody going to come forward and say, I authored it, I delivered it, I was the one who needed Mrs. Borden to come? And with each passing minute, as that day heads into evening, they had to be thinking, this is really strange. And with each passing hour, they're becoming more and more convinced that there never was a note. So they had an opportunity up to that point to try to question her in depth and they hadn't done it. And by the late afternoon or evening of Thursday, August 4th, although I'm not 100% sure, I'm pretty sure that Lizzie's lawyer, Andrew Jennings, who had been her father's lawyer, turns out to be, ended up being one of the defense lawyers in the trial, that he's on the scene or he's gotten word to the police that he's now involved. And if not, it's coming pretty soon. And They've basically missed their chance to interview her and get some valuable information and put some pressure on her. They may also have known at that point, and if they didn't know right then, they learned very quickly that Lizzie and Emma did not get along with Mrs. Borden and that there had been a dispute over money. And then at that point, when they learned that, and it may well have been late on Thursday, at that point, they must have said to themselves, Isn't it convenient? What a coincidence 
that it's Mrs. Borden who's murdered first. Isn't that convenient that she died just far enough ahead of Mr. Borden so that there can be no dispute she died first? And that means that Mrs. Borden's relatives, blood relatives, get nothing. And because Mr. Borden didn't have a will, as far as we could tell, that means the girls get everything. Isn't that convenient? What a coincidence. Okay, so we're done for today, and I hope you join me next week. And until then, take care. Bye.